You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number four. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. I am honored that KP Kalsa is my guest today. I met uh, KP about 10 years ago, immediately falling in love with the depth of his knowledge, his engaging teaching style. And I have taken uh, his courses, attended his lectures, and invited him to my program to my students to impart his wisdom uh, to them. Karta Purk Singh Khalsa has over 40 years of experience in holistic medicine. He's truly one of the foremost natural healing experts in Northern America. He is a former president of the American Herbalist Guild, is a respected practitioner, teacher, lecturer, writer, and consultant. As a practitioner, KP is a state-certified dietitian, nationally recognized herbalist, nationally certified massage therapist. He offers health consultations by phone with clients around the world. As a teacher, KP is nationally credentialed to teach herbalism, yoga, body work, including Ayurvedic massage and spa techniques. KP is the founder of the International Integrative Education Institute. Its division, the Herbalist College and the Ayurveda College, offer uh, post-secondary training for professional herbalists around the United States. Uh, KP is also a faculty member at several prestigious schools like Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, Bastyr University, the National College of Natural Medicine, and the Northwest Institute of Ayurveda. As a writer, KP is the author of over 3,000 published health articles. He has written and edited uh, over 30 books on a variety of health topics. His latest book, The Way of Ayurvedic Herbs, co-authored with Michael Tierra, another famous uh, herbalist here in the Northern American, uh, brings to life Ayurveda in an understandable and very practical way. As a consultant for 30 years, KP has served as a senior research scientist and chief medical formulator for Yogi Tea, a medicinal tea company that you might be familiar with from your local health food store, as well as several others. Today, KP's approach to holistic healing is very eclectic, and I'm thrilled that he will be able to share some of his wisdom with us. KP, welcome to the show. Hi, Lana. Nice to speak with you again. It was really nice to see you at the American Herbalist Guild uh, conference that we both attended just a couple of weeks ago. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. So I would like to ask you a few questions about your journey. when and how did you discover your interest in health and healing? What, what's your story? Well, I've been uh, practicing and teaching and doing the things that I do in this field for 47 years. It's the only thing I've done as an adult uh, career-wise. I now have a very different perspective sort of looking back and being more in the, in the autumn of my career. When I was young, I was diagnosed when I was 10 years old as having a degenerative 
a disease that uh, nobody lives past 40 with this particular disease. And I was just starting to become, um, uh, starting to have pain every single day consistently. And then by the time I got in high school, I was in pain every single day. But, you know, when you're 10 years old, you just don't really process those things very well. And I didn't really understand exactly what that meant, I think. But uh, by the time I got, I was in high school, there was nothing that could be done. And the doctors just said, look, don't use too much morphine too early because you'll need a lot later. Oh. So I just bucked up and did everything that otherwise would do, even though I was in pain. Then when I was in college, I took a yoga class, and uh, we did one exercise that left me pain-free for about five minutes, which was amazing. And I just thought, okay, look, if there's, everybody said there's nothing that can be done, but here's something that was effective. So uh, if there's that one thing, there might be other things, and I began to investigate. And this was during the hippie times of the late 60s, early 70s, and people were interested in all kinds of uh, new and exotic ideas, and I was very much in the thick of that. So I just became fascinated by natural healing. Looking back now, I think that probably I was uh, part of the whole sort of wounded healer metaphor, you know, where I was really subconsciously looking for something for myself, but it of wasn't course, conscious initially. And then now looking back there, uh, I made it well past 40, that's for sure, and my uh, I'm no longer diagnosable as having that particular uh, disease, and I credit all these natural healing kinds of ideas, diet, herbal medicine, yoga, Ayurveda, all these things that I've done uh, for those uh, changes. That's wonderful. That's you mentioned Ayurveda, and this is a huge part of your healing and also a huge part of your teaching. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what attracted you to study it? Is, was it just the first experience with yoga, or was there something else? Well, I was already getting interested in all these alternative ideas. You know, people were experimenting with new exotic healthy diets, macrobiotics, vegetarian diet, whatever. And so I was involved in all that uh, sort of discussion. And then uh, the yoga class, uh, I was philosophically interested in yoga, but then I began to actually do it physically and got this great benefit. And then very shortly after I began to get involved, I met my the person who was to become my teacher, Yogi Bhajan. And he uh, invited me to study with him, to study Ayurveda and herbalism and yoga. And I then eventually became his herbal apprentice, the only herbal apprentice he ever uh, established. And of course, this all became, this all happened very organically, you know. And so he invited me to study with him. I didn't know what that meant. I started to, you know, pursue it. And 32 years later, we were still uh, working together. Uh, he's been gone for 15 years now, so I've continued to study those things. But he sent me to study with many other different teachers and explore many different ideas. Ayurveda is the ancient holistic healing system of India, the sister health science of yoga. So we think of yoga here maybe as being a physical exercise, but it's really motivated to enhance human experience, growth, awareness, meditation, consciousness. And uh, the physical part is just one part of that. Well, in order to keep people healthy... We have the more medical side, which is herbs, diet, body work, those kinds of things, um, Ayurveda. You can imagine nearly 50 years ago what that meant, which was nothing. We had no books, no herbs, no outlets, just nothing at all. So uh, the, the learning was very slow, and I learned from my teacher just from his memory and his mastery of the subject. And slowly but surely, things began to trickle in, and we began to get access to you know, some of these Asian herbs, but I learned Ayurvedic principles very often from uh, Western herbs, which were a little more available, and slowly over the years it came together. Now it's become very formalized. Uh, there are 
schools uh, granting degrees in Ayurveda. I, I teach in a couple master's programs, and we have um, you know one-year type lifestyle counselor courses all over the place. And it's definitely become very trendy. So there, there we are. That's awesome. When some of our listeners who might be a little bit more familiar with Ayurveda possibly have heard about constitutions or doshas. Can you explain a little bit more about those and why are those practically important? Yeah, Ayurveda explains everything in the world of health from the point of view of energies that you can experience in your own body. So if we go back to the beginning of Ayurveda, which we think is probably the oldest still practiced uh, indigenous system of medicine, at least 5,000 years old with very ancient literature, we go back that far. People didn't have uh, mechanical uh, apparatus and kinds of tests we have now, but they did have uh, very astute and subtle experiences of, the, of their own body. So they would eat a food or take an herb and then experience what would happen in their body, talk to their colleagues about it, and over the millennia, a consensus would develop about what was good, um, what that herb or food or diet or meditation or body work was good for. And then people began to express these in terms of um, uh, energy uh, words, like it made your body hotter or colder or wetter or drier. So this information gradually got condensed into these three primal metabolic forces that we call doshas. Dosha literally means to rot or to decompose or to get funky, something that can go bad or something that can go out of, out of balance. But they're not uh, negative in the sense that everything we are is made of our doshas. There are three primal metabolic forces that run everything in our body from the control of our nervous system running everything to the building of tissue to the maintenance of our digestion and like that. So we have these three doshas. We'd like to keep these doshas in balance and that would be the definition of health from the Ayurvedic point of view, the doshas in balance. So your body is maintaining all of your body energies in that uh, middle zone, we call it the zone of dynamic balance, right in the little in the middle where you have a little bit of wiggle room, but basically you're not too hot, not too cold, not too wet, not too dry, like that. Well, these doshas are uh, metabolic forces, but the predominance of these doshas in your body is established uh, at birth or or by birth. So, your the body that you inherited is made up of your genetic inheritance and then whatever happened to you in the uterus during gestation and so when by the time you're born you have a certain type of body that was been has been built by these uh, energies and it gives you the blueprint or the long-term tendency for your body to to develop in a particular way so we all have advantages and disadvantages from those bodies that we've inherited some people have uh, excellent stamina, for example. They hardly have to work at anything just to be able to work long hours at, you know, in a consistent pace. Other people have creativity. Other people uh, have, uh, you know, power and leadership and uh, things like that. So depends on what's going on in your body and your nerves, your neurotransmitters. We want to keep those things in balance. So some people are born with a body that naturally, for example, burns calories uh, very efficiently and uh, wastes a bunch of those calories basically t for you to be too hot or we would call it hypermetabolic. Your body runs too fast and too hot. Uh, we're trying to keep everything in that zone of dynamic balance where it's all neutral and if your body's running too hot, you damage your tissues. It's uh, the wave of inflammation that we're all talking about now. So there's an example. So we find out 
in Ayurveda what a person's baseline blueprint is, whether you're in a body that's likely to be sort of head toward the direction of being too cold or too hot or too wet or too dry, depending on what you do in your life. And if you're aware of those things, you can offset that. So if your body tends to be kind of slowly drift toward the direction of being too hot, if you're not paying attention, you can eat cooling foods, for example, to bring yourself back to that neutral place where all your enzyme systems and your organs and everything are functioning at the right speed, in the right way, the proper digestive secretions, the proper neurotransmitters. And you stay in that middle zone uh, throughout your life and you nourish yourself to stay uh, healthy and robust and vibrant. You have a strong immune system, strong hormone balance, and uh, we can live a long life of uh, balanced health by understanding those underlying principles. As you're talking about it, I'm wondering, like, how does one learn how to become so aware about where your body is? Yeah, you know, in uh, traditional cultures, you would learn this from your grandparents. And the Ayurveda actually specifically says that on your third birthday, you sit down and talk to your grandparents about the body that, you, that you've inherited. Uh, none of us did that, so we all have to learn as adults. And it takes a while of just experimenting with things. I mean, it, the difference between something like eating a, a, a jalapeno pepper versus eating a cucumber, all of us could tell that difference with the chili is hot, the cucumber is cold. It's pretty straightforward. So as you learn more and more of those kinds of things, you're better able to subtly experience those differences. And if you spend some time studying it, now fortunately all this has been worked out for us anyway, so you can just read books about it. You can take questionnaires on the internet. Uh, you can read my book and other people's books about how to um, assess what's going on in your body. Constitution that you mentioned, Lana, is the long-term trend for your body to maintain a particular balance of these energies. So I have a cold, wet body, for example, so I have to be very aware of that and make sure that I don't retain water and that my metabolism just doesn't sort of kind of wind down and get slower and slower. Other people have, you know, other combinations of those things. So we call that the constitution. We don't actually treat the constitution. We try to bring you back to that place of natural balance in your body, and then you with just little nudges of diet and lifestyle and sleep and body work and yoga and all the things that we do, you can keep yourself aligned on that path. Most people drift away from that middle path uh, one way or another throughout their life, and they tend to drift in the direction of their constitution. Anything can happen. There's any possibility, but they typically tend to go in that direction. So if I had just lived life however I wanted to with paying no attention and kind of just doing whatever seemed to feel right at the time, I would have slowly drifted in that direction of a cold, wet body. In fact, I did. So by the time I was Mr. Mucus when I was growing up and I had every type of respiratory disease, pneumonia and the croup and all that stuff. And uh, that was because m nobody was aware of the issue. I didn't eat a diet that would have kept me a little drier and a little warmer. Uh, which could have steered me gently away from all those things. So most Americans, when they come to see a practitioner, uh, have all three doshas, uh, all going in different directions, and they have a hot problem in one part of their body and a cold problem in another part of their body. Generally speaking, though, on average, people tend to drift in the direction of their constitution like I did. So I had all kinds of schemes for how to handle mucus, and I, you know, I took every antibiotic and decongestant for my sinus stuff growing up, because that was what was expected. And then when I learned about these kinds of principles and started living in that way, all the sinus problems went away, and I haven't had to treat any kind of sinus issue now for, you know, certainly 45 years. So um, 
it educates you about how to live your life to prevent problems, and then Ayurveda can help you actually treat the problems if you have allowed things to develop, and of course, who hasn't, you know? So we can treat them and then get you back on track. For most people with diligent effort, that takes about five years. And of course, Americans want everything instantaneously. So um, when I say that, people are like, five years? I can't commit to five years of working on my health. But of course, the reality is those five years are going to go by anyway. And That's you know, you true. might. But when you get there, then you can maintain that. It's much easier to maintain than to correct. And then you just sustain that for the next 80 years, and you're doing great. That's awesome. One of the questions that I had for you when I was thinking about our interview is whether you have specific rituals that you follow, maybe morning or evening uh, rituals or specific foods that you are eating or not eating. But as I'm listening to you right now, what I'm realizing is that every single person that would be listening to your answer, if they were to apply to it, it doesn't mean that it would actually benefit them. Is that correct? Yeah, there is no, in Ayurveda in particular, and this would be true of all natural healing really, but Ayurveda in particular, there's no ideal anything for anyone, no ideal diet, no ideal exercise plan or daily schedule or meditation practice. It's all individual. The beauty of our ancestors having studied and codified this material for 5,000 years is that they can tell us now the kinds of things that would benefit us. So we don't have to experiment for decades to figure it out. We can just do what they said to do and it works, you know, it works great. Ayurveda in particular... Uh, was developed by people with way too much time on their hands. <laughs> 5,000 years of experimenting, every question that could ever have been asked about how the human body works has been asked and answered. So there's sort of nothing new. Now, new applications, you know, they, they couldn't have imagined we could have had 24-hour electric lights in our house or driving in cars or flying in planes. So we have to apply these principles to those new things that are happening. But our, we have the same digestive tract that they had, the same brain, the same skin, so we know the kinds of things that facilitate uh, health. So from the Ayurveda point of view, and this would be true of Chinese medicine, maybe less so of Western naturopathy, but still comparable. Um, there are thousands of things that you could do, and it's just really persnickety, and you could take it down to the level. There's a rule, for example, for which nostril you should be, should be dominant when you're breathing, when you step over the threshold in the morning to go to work in the morning. It's down to that level, you know, or how many times you should chew a bite of food. And, you know, it's very challenging to get into it to that level. And most people don't can't do it perfectly. I mean, if you tried to live a perfect life, it'd take 35 hours of, uh, out of a 24-hour day. And you have to work and manage your life. So for most people, looking at these very extensive teachings is best approached as being like a smorgasbord possibility. It's a, a buffet of things that you can choose from to help you. One of our students the last week was just complaining that her daily morning routine um, has gotten so long that she's considering, uh, you know, changing jobs or not going to class in the morning or something like that because it's already two and a half hours of things that she does to promote her health. And it makes her feel so great that she wants to do more of it that she knows she's not getting to. But, you know, there, there's a limit. So you do the best you can. Of course. You mentioned that this is a buffet, and so for someone to really figure out what works for them, exploring different resources, exploring, uh, speaking to different teachers, speaking to different practitioners, do you have any recommendations of such resources? Like, where would someone start? I would say that from the Ayurvedic point of view, uh, the place to start would be the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, and uh, they have a website that's packed with uh, information from the herbal medicine point of view. Of course, it would be the uh, the American Herbalist Guild, 
uh, website. And then there are other comparable organizations for the various numerous approaches. But you go to one of those major portals like that that leads you into that whole world and then start figuring out where you can... Um, you know, gain insight. The nice thing about those places is that the websites are curated. That that is, you're not going to have junky information. We know that the inf- that the internet is just full of nonsense, and so you go to one of those organizations that's pre-selected, and the teachers that are going to be represented there are credentialed and experienced and vetted by their peers. You mentioned Michael Tierra, for example. You know, people of that stature who have reached a consensus about the information. It's remarkable. When you get together with people who have been doing this uh, a while, they've all discovered the same things by one way or another, you know, by experience or by learning or reading books or whatever. But there's certain core truths in these things that people find to be beneficial. And most of the other things are kind of just noise, you know. We get all caught up in which kind of diet is perfect and, uh, you know, all those dietary details. And every single thing now is debatable and contentious. Uh, But bottom line, there are some core truths that are consistent with all these ideas. And most of the things that people debate really are kind of fluff around the outside. And you just kind of make up your own mind about how you feel about uh, those things. Yeah, so to get started, uh, my website certainly has a lot of great information about, in fact, all those. We're talking about Ayurveda right now, but I practice a um, blend of the big three, Western, Chinese, and uh, Ayurveda. Most people know me as an Ayurvedist because I have a back, yoga background and that's what I, you know, my main teaching originally was. And until recently, there weren't a lot of us Ayurveda teachers. So I ended up being the token Ayurveda guy at every conference and I kind of got known that way. But there's a, on my website, there would be a lot of good information from all three perspectives. I will definitely share all three of these resources. Thank you. Um, you mentioned herbal medicine how it fits in into your practice, how did you discover it, how did you discover uh, Western herbalism, and how do you integrate it into your practice? Yeah, well, way back when I started, there, these distinctions didn't really exist, you know, we would meet somebody somehow through our network and begin to study with them and, you know, take a, a weekend class, there was no internet, so it was all by, uh, you know, in person, and so one of us in, in our network would stumble across some venerated teacher from a previous generation, and we'd invite them to come to town, and they'd teach a weekend workshop, and then there would be the next one. So uh, I had the great benefit of standing on the shoulders of giants, and many of my early uh, mentors were uh, quite elderly when I was quite young. So I had a chance to study with uh, John Christopher, with Bernard Jensen, with Jay Shear, um, numerous, I mean, we could name many more, but people who, uh, whose lives were not to be much longer after we studied with them, but uh, the, the, those just very few people of my generation who were interested all sort of got to know each other and shared this information, and it gradually, you know, evolved. I mean, you could learn everything there was to learn about Ayurveda in a weekend, you know, and likewise, Western herbalism or whatever what was publicly available, you know, there were three books on herbalism and no books on Ayurveda, and so you could learn what you could learn, and then you had to start tapping into these teachers, and usually there was no opportunity to study with them with great, you know, in depth, I mean, I studied with my teacher Yogi Bhajan in, you know, in great depth, but these other teachers, you'd have to kind of follow them around, which, you know, we did, and we gradually developed those kinds of ideas, so it was a workshop one weekend with a Western herbalist, another workshop, another weekend with some, you know, dietary expert. These guys were all, you know, in their 70s or 80s when we were meeting them as teenagers. 
and uh, just that last little gasp. And they were fascinated by us, of course, because they'd been reviled by society. Natural medicine had been dead for 70 years, and they were carrying the torch, that last few, you know, uh, hardy people. And most of them had been in and out of jail many times for, you know. <laughs> Practicing without a license. Right. Or most of them actually had licenses, but they were just being persecuted by the dominant paradigm, you know. So they here was a bunch of... Um, uh, curious uh, college-age kids looking to study it, and it just fascinated them. And so they they wanted to really devote the last years of their life to passing on their legacy. You know, they did. I I didn't mention Dr. Bestier, of course, for whom the college is named. So I I studied with him, and you know, many quite notable people like that. And some had Chinese training, and then some had Ayurvedic training. Ayurveda was sort of the the last to you know, to come along of the big three in terms of uh, being able to really be well-educated. I was fortunate in that I had a mentor, but, um, you know, there weren't many schools, there were no books, you know. Some of these other, those pe other people that I mentioned had actually all written a few books here and there, so we did have some information from them. Nutritional therapy um, became a very large part of your teaching and practice as well. And so it, what I'm assuming that parts of it also you, you began learning during, you know, your early 20s. But how has it evolved in the last 35, 45 years? Yeah, it's certainly become much more formalized. And, you know, we have this strange process in our culture of dividing up natural healing into all these little kind of subcategories and credentialing these modalities. So people get credentialed, you know, I have a license as a dietitian nutritionist, and the, the you, ha you have these little slices. It's all part of the bigger pie. None of those people who I talked about thought of themselves as being, as only practicing one modality. They all use diet, herbal medicine, body work, lifestyle, you know. But the way we credential people, with the exception maybe of naturopathy, but, you know, chiropractors, work on your spine, nutritionists tell you about your diet, yoga teachers tell you about how to do yoga, and on and on, and you get a license in one tiny little sliver of this whole thing. And so that's where we've gone. So you, you can get credentials, uh, you know, as a nutritional therapist uh, now, and I, I teach those uh, classes for my own school and a few other venues, and uh, it trains people to use food uh, as medicine short-term and long-term to help you stay healthy and to treat disease. So uh, you can get uh, credentials in those all the way up to, uh, you know, doctorates. Uh, most of these are now evolved enough so that you, people are starting to develop doctoral programs in these various, uh, various techniques. So nutritional therapy is a core part of Western natural healing, Ayurveda, and Chinese medicine. And then some programs include all of those, and some are more sort of conventional. Usually, people who are interested in natural healing will focus on a program that's a little less conventional. You know, you can get a uh, credential as a registered dietitian. It's a four-year bachelor's degree that confers, you know, the ability to practice legally in maybe hospitals and places like that. That tends to be quite uh, conventional, though. So people are putting using dietary principles that evolved have evolved over the past 40 years and are quite um, restrictive whereas most uh, people involved in the natural healing world 
uh, are on the cutting edge of learning about, you know, new uses for vitamins and herbal medicine in food and, you know, things like that. But to me, it just all goes together. It's all part of the same whole whole basket of things. And you just, for a person that's interested in studying it, you just have to kind of decide, well, which thing sort of grabs you first and dive into whatever the modality is. The problem with these things is that to credential them, naturopathy has this problem of, I teach at two naturopathic medical universities, and the naturopathic students receive training that, while excellent, has the problem of sort of being a mile wide and an inch deep. So they study 17 modalities, and they have to spend two years with basic sciences like medical doctors, and then they cram their learn their education regarding the techniques they'll actually use into the last two years. So they're trying to master 17 techniques in two years. It's very difficult to do. And that's hydrotherapy and body work and exercise and nutrition and just, you know, homeopathy, 17 of them. So we're challenged to figure out how to manage this, you know, to take, to bite off everything is too big, but to bite off one little slice um, divorces it from the rest of things. So if you're looking at it, let's say from a nutritionist point of view, all you know about is food and maybe vitamins, but you don't, you haven't studied herbs or body work and it's very challenging. Um, you know, the old system, and you know, I now have, you know, a fair amount of academic training, but if we go back to when I first started, I studied, studied in the old system by being a, a uh, mentored by all these giants from the past generation, and it was learning by doing. So we didn't sit in a classroom for four years and then get booted out. You know, when I started with my teacher when I was a teenager, uh, I saw my first client two hours after our first session together. Now, he was there with me supervising, but it was learning by doing very different. And now, you know, we've condensed all these things into these um, academic programs where people can learn. So, you other than naturopathy, which is kind of tries to do everything, you pretty much have to pick a modality and, you know, get learn that, and then you can take other postgraduate courses or learn, you know, study other modalities. It, 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 we're in a learning period, you know, it's challenging to figure out how to educate people about these things. It's fascinating it's fasc to me because you're talking about, first of all, divorcing or separating all these different things. And I agree with you that it's impossible to learn everything because you're just doing it pretty much theoretically. I remember actually one specific story, one anecdote. I took your course on culinary herbalism and you recommended uh, playing with turmeric. And I remember actually trying it with the coconut milk. Oh my gosh, I couldn't smell turmeric for a couple of months. I just overdosed on it. Nothing bad happened, but it, I just took too much of it uh, that particular one time. I am back to using turmeric in curries and various other places, but uh, it's like these things that you learn through experience is something that really stays with you. And unless you experiment, you really don't know or you haven't, you can read all you want, but unless you have tasted certain herbs, or all of the herbs that you're recommending, uh, you really don't know them very well. It's always good to have the personal experience. I remember a similar situation with my uh, teacher, Yogi Bhajan, who was pretty direct and assertive teacher. And also, since I was his only uh, apprentice, I was often the test subject. So he had me do six weeks of raw zucchini one time, oh. which turned oh. out to be quite beneficial for my body. It was actually a good match energy-wise, and it, I got a lot of benefit from it. But I, I can barely look a zucchini in the face now, you know, 40 years later. So, yeah, it, 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 these things make an impression, that's for sure. 
the other thing that you mentioned is the this concept of mentorship, and I know that you also mentor um, herbalists that are uh, currently either uh, starting their practice. Can you tell a little bit more about this? I know that maybe this audience is not uh, it's not a perfect fit for them, but I still think it's a very important message to share that there are people that actually provide opportunities for mentorship. Yeah, that's right. And really, eventually, one way or another, you, you have to get your feet on the ground with these things. You can study from books for uh, you know, a certain amount of time, but then you have to start doing it with real people. So some kind of a clinical class. But other than that, uh, you can work with uh, mentors. The American Herbalist Guild has a formal mentorship system, and I'm one of the mentors. And there are a few dozen mentors who are um, well-established experts. And you can get together with me or these other uh, mentors for an hour here or a very extensive long-term kind of uh, mentorship. And then I do mentorships just privately uh, for people who are interested in any of those things, whether it's nutritional therapy or Ayurveda or whatever. So that's where you can really uh, go through a lot of material very quickly. I usually do that by having people bring cases. By the time people are ready for that sort of thing, they usually are treating people. And so they bring cases and we talk about those cases and that's just learning by doing a little more indirect but you know when you're sitting in a class the the teacher has to address everyone in the class and kind of go at the speed of the slowest person but when you're working one-on-one -on -one, you can go as fast as you can absorb the information so it's a great way to really cram a lot of information in quick and then talk about things on you know an individual level like your experience with the turmeric or you know I can tell somebody wait a minute you you know the Chinese formula says to do this, but understand that's going to taste horrible, which they wouldn't know unless we had that, you know, that connection. Thank you. Someone who's listening to this podcast might be thinking that um, herbal medicine or Ayurveda or nutritional therapy or just the combination of all of them um, are ways to uh, handle a lot of uh, simple things like, you know, colds and flus and things of that type. But I know from uh, attending a lot of your um, a, a lot of your lectures that you actually believe and you have uh, used them for handling a much more complex cases. Can you please talk a little bit about that? Right. That's a common misconception about natural medicine. Um, that number one, that it's slow. Uh, and number two, that you can only use it for self-limited conditions like cold or flu or constipation or headache. But in fact, uh, it works very, very well for every kind of thing that you could imagine. And the beauty of where we are now is that we can do things that never could have been done in human history before because we can bring all these resources together. Modern resources, uh, you know, new studies on things. Um, the idea, for example, of uh, using turmeric for depression is something that was not part of the history of Ayurveda, but there's been a whole lot of new science on that now. So that made us aware of that uh, benefit. So we're drawing from all these uh, ancient, the knowledge of these ancient cultures, the modern application of these things through modern type study, and then the blending of all these things. Plus, we have unprecedented communication. I mean, here we're talking across the country with each other on the Internet. Uh, you have an extensive background. I have an extensive background. And we can share these things with each other. And so our knowledge is multiplying amazingly. So the kinds of things we can do now are things that even gosh, you know, a year or two ago, mm -hmm. we're handling things, you know, serious neurological issues like multiple sclerosis. Uh, we're very close to cracking Alzheimer's, I think. I talk to people very regularly 
uh, from conventional medicine and alternative medicine that feel like we're right on the verge. And uh, one of my uh, colleagues, a conventional expert in Alzheimer's, said that he thinks ten, in 10 years we'll, we'll have figured it out. That's probably pretty reasonable. That's something that we just thought five years ago, nothing to do. But now we know that it's possible to reverse and, um, you know, and resolve. I don't think anybody has claimed to cure Alzheimer's yet. And it's hard to define cure with these things because multiple sclerosis, for example, which is one of my specialties, I've treated uh, dozens, if not hundreds of cases. And uh, nobody, so far, every single person is in remission. No one has had a relapse. But that doesn't prove anything because that's, you know, 100, 200 people and multiple sclerosis relapse. But it's starting to look pretty good. You know, 200 out of 200 are not relapsing. That's pretty good. So it's taking a while to put together these statistics. But even if we go back 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, you know, could I have said that uh, multiple sclerosis is a slam dunk, I would have said, well, you know, we, we do pretty well with it, but now we just do really well. So, uh, you know, autism, but very, very difficult things like this. You know, I just um, read a uh, study a couple days ago, speaking of Alzheimer's, that uh, indicated that Alzheimer's is only 5% genetic, 95% epigenetic. And we just even a year ago, we used to think it was 50-50 at best because we thought it ran in families and that, you know, if your grandparents had Alzheimer's, you might get Alzheimer's. But now when we really dig into the, the studies and, and look at it carefully, we now realize that your genetic inheritance is only 5%. That is amazing news because it means that if you take care of yourself, you can avoid it, 95% chance of avoiding it. Uh, and likewise with cancer, uh, we, we see numbers like that now. So. You know, it's not 50-50 or, you know, if we go back, what, 30 years, we thought the cancer kind of fell on you out of the sky like an accident. And then 10 years ago, we thought it was 50% genetic. And now we know it's 5% genetic. Very, very encouraging, which means that all these things that we get from traditional medicine and then modern, you know, we didn't have things like magnesium pills, uh, you know, 50 years ago. Now we have those kinds of things and we're blending them in ways that we never could have before. Just amazing uh, results and the people have to commit to it, dive into it, actually really do it. It's not that onerous, but you still you have to commit to it, and then uh, great results. I'm really encouraged about where we're going with natural medicine. We've just kind of really reached a peak place where a whole bunch of factors came together that we were waiting for, and now we have these tools and uh, we can finally apply them in ways to get spectacular results. Can you talk a little bit more about these factors? What are they? Well, it's the modern understanding of nutrition, some of these modern theories about things like chronic subclinical inflammation and its effect on diseases like diabetes and Alzheimer's, um, the uh, ability to understand and use these various herbs from these cultures. So, you know, I can read about an Ayurvedic herb all day long, but if I can't actually get it in my hands and use it, then, you know, I can't tell how well it works. But now we can... Um, you know, just go on the internet and with a click of a mouse, you can have that Ayurvedic herb in your hands in two days. And, you know, books that we never could have had access to uh, from other cultures, people writing these various books, the advent of nutritional supplements and nutritional phytotherapy things. An example would be the uh, nutritional supplement Hooperzine. That's an extract from a Chinese club moss. Well, that Chinese club moss was known in Chinese medicine to be a little bit kind of mildly toxic and so there was there's only so much you could use and scientists looked at it and said well maybe the toxic ingredients are 
separate from the active ingredients and investigated and turned out that was true. So they were able to extract the active ingredient called huperzine and now we can use it in significant amounts for just really dramatic changes uh, in the brain and uh, we never could have done that until, you know, what, five years ago when these discoveries were made and it was separate. One of my colleagues, a very conventional neurologist the other day said that he gives huperzine to every single patient now and not because he's a natural healing nut but because the studies indicate it. In Parkinson's, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, um, uh, you know, just, I mean, everything that he treats, everybody gets huperzine. He said they all benefit uh, from it. Well, there's an example of something that, you know, very, very new. So all these things are kind of coming together with modern science and traditional knowledge becoming available. And, you know, now that we can teach each other about these things, uh, you know, we can learn them and the knowledge is just spiraling upward and we, we're coming to some very high level understanding of how to use these things in a way that really impact people. That's great. A lot of listeners um, are going to be younger in age, and so uh, many of them are either uh, college students, young professionals, many of them uh, might not be dealing with uh, health or significant health issues, but we are all um, dealing with stress and being overwhelmed and trying to figure out how to sharpen our cognition. Any words of wisdom on this? Yeah, the main thing that most other cultures do that is uh, very, very different than what we tend to do is to use uh, adaptogens, long-term stamina-enhancing uh, remedies that uh, promote uh, the control of inflammation and help your glandular system manage hormone balance properly. And those are normally started at uh, puberty, and every system has uh, two or three or four of them that are outstanding. Herbs like ginseng, um, ashwagandha from Ayurveda, and there's a long list of them, but these are, you starting to use those things uh, when you're young just makes a huge difference. So the, you, normally we don't see people until they're busted and they wait until they just can't stand it anymore and then they come in and want the non-drug drug that acts like a drug. We don't really have that. We have things that, you know, like the huperzine I mentioned earlier, that's sort of in that category, but you, you still have to make some pretty serious adjustments and those changes are challenging for people once they're older and busted. But to avoid having those problems, you use things to control inflammation in your body and support the proper hormone balance and good digestion. Make sure that your uh, bowels are functioning properly and that you're getting good sleep and those kinds of things. The challenge, of course, is that everybody feels a lot better when they're younger and they think they're invincible. And we, in our culture, we don't have good examples of people who are, um, you know, 80, 85, 90 years old who are still doing great. There are some examples. I mean, we can point to a few people, people running marathons when they're 90. They do exist, but they're so rare that what people really see is their grandparents, their aunt and uncle, and their neighbors who are just completely busted by the time they're 80. And uh, they don't want to to recognize that. They don't want to be like that. And so they just kind of go into denial and eat, drink, and be merry because we might as well be have fun now because we're going to be all busted down like that. And now our, our system of conventional medicine uh, is so good that we can keep the carcass alive for a long, long time. And the last 10 years of people's lives are usually pretty miserable. They're in an assisted living facility. They're kind of just praying that they won't wake up tomorrow because every day is just waking up to even more pain and, and disability. So to avoid that, you have to start when you're younger. And of course, then you have to just sort of tune into these ideas and believe them. I think you and I are converts to these ideas, but the average person 
has to start to take some advice from our ancestors and realize that if you want to be uh, a person uh, living healthy, strong, vibrant, having good cognition, uh, not living in pain, you have to do things now. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough sell, but I think slowly we're getting there. Uh, I agree uh. with you. Before we part, I have a couple of questions for you. One of them is, is there anything that we have not discussed that you think uh, would be important for this audience to, to hear or to know? Well, I really would like people to deeply connect with the idea that natural medicine is effective, dramatic, feelable, and you, you can uh, tune into it and get the results you want relatively quickly. Uh, it does take some commitment and some effort, but we just hear a lot of nonsense about natural medicine out there you know, in the world, uh, fears that it's dangerous or that it's slow or only works for minimal things. For most people, the idea that natural medicine, they would be involved with it, would be that it would be a convenient hobby, kind of a cute thing to experiment with and maybe, you know, something would happen. And they eat organic or gluten-free or whatever the thing is, but they don't really understand the context. I want people to know that uh, it really does work. It's feelable. It's dramatic. Uh, we can treat, you know, other than severe trauma, uh, we can treat uh, pretty much everything that conventional medicine could treat now and, uh, and very, very well. So these very serious diseases, uh, you know, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, we do very, very well with them. Um, and uh, people just need to sort of dig in and, you know, find some competent practitioners that begin to work on it. But you then uh, are able to get well without having the side effects of the, uh, the drugs or the conventional kinds of things. If you get hit in an auto accident, go right to the emergency room, get, you know, uh, put back together, but then go out and find your natural healing practitioner to help you heal up properly. And um, these issues with uh, chronic degenerative diseases, like the ones we mentioned, uh, are what conventional medicine does not do very well. I had a funny experience uh, recently. I'm uh, 63 years old, and I went to my medical doctor for a um, just an annual physical. And I was filling out the new form and it came to the drug list and I left it blank and they said, oh sir, you forgot to fill out your drug list. I said, well, I don't take any drugs. And uh, you know, so there's none. And they said, that's not possible. We, we have thousands of patients in this clinic. We've never seen a person over 60 that doesn't take drugs. We think you're lying to us. And I said, I assure you, I'm not lying, you know. And I had to sign a special notarized statement saying that I was, that I was not lying and said, you know, we're going to, uh, unless you sign this statement, we're going to test your blood for common drugs that someone your age would be taking and, uh, you know, to make sure that you're not lying. And uh, from their point of view, I understand they needed to know the drugs I was taking to be able to treat me properly. But, I mean, that's just a real comment on our culture that this entire clinic of, you know, a dozen doctors had never seen a person over 60 who didn't take at least one drug. Uh, so, you know, there you go. But it's very, very possible to do, and we know people that are doing it and, you know, can live very well without those kinds of things. Um, so my last question for you is, I know I have explored your uh, website in great length, and I know that you offer a variety of different programs. You have longer programs on herbal training basics and professional herbalist training and nutritional therapies, but you also have smaller lectures. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Also, how can uh, our audience find you and learn from you? 
Yeah, I think, Lana, that you're going to be posting some information on the website of the podcast, and so that will be there for you to click through. But it's internationalintegrative.com, easy to remember. And uh, you can go to the uh, educational offerings there, and we do things uh, pretty much every week. We offer a short uh, class on some topic of interest. Um, and it, it may have to do with any of these kinds of things we've talked about. They're quite variable. And then maybe, you know, two-part or five-part classes, but, you know, ways to stick your toe in and begin to get experience with these with these things. And then, as you said, all the way up to the multi-year kinds of classes, looking to get credentialed by these, you know, to get professional credentials uh, in these things. A wide variety of nutrition, Ayurveda, herbal medicine, uh, natural healing kinds of classes. So, yeah, come check it out. We'd love to have you. KP, thank you so much for coming uh, to this show, for sharing your wisdom, your expertise. I am absolutely humbled and very honored that you were able to, to join me. Thank well, coming, coming from you, Lana, that's quite the praise. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. KP was kind to provide a lot of great information and materials for you to explore. Please find the link to his materials in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash four. I also would like to invite you to connect on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get health and wellness related news I share. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you.